Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet this week's panel. Alex Andreu is a commentator. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. It seems like a long time ago now, but COP26 <laughs> President Alok Sharma held back tears on Sunday as he closed the conference. A late intervention by China and India saw the text of the agreement change from a phasing out to a phasing down of coal use. And as, as we uh, talked about last week, mm. um, these single words matter quite a lot. The agreement was reached. These things always go down to the wire. How does it measure up? How is it being assessed? I think having settled in and read what everyone thinks uh, poorly, I'm afraid, there has, of course, been some progress, and we should acknowledge that and celebrate it. Um, There were good side deals on deforestation and methane. Very disappointing that there was very little solid on the issue of loss and damage uh, for the global south. But the broad equation, I think, goes like this. The more unwilling countries one involves in the process of decarbonization, the more the timeline for it lengthens. It's very positive that India has now made a commitment, but 2070 is too late. The problem is that this can provide cover for developed countries, let's say Australia, to elongate their switch to renewables or to outsource their footprint. So what is essential is for countries to keep pushing to go green as fast as they can, rather than by the slowest common denominator, if that makes sense. This means the inclusion of more countries in the process is just a benefit, because it doesn't affect the pace at which what else is going on goes on. But if we see their inclusion leading to backsliding, then the effect can be disastrous, because we know that on climate change, action today is disproportionately more effective than the same action tomorrow. Ros Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Ros. Hello, Dorian. Uh, the academic David Runciman has written a long read in The Guardian, um, which outlines a position he first put forward in 2018. I remember him uh, doing a sort of podcast lecture about this, that the legal voting age should be lowered to six. Uh, you're the parent of two children. Would you trust them with our nation's fragile democracy? I would trust the older one who's 12. I would not trust the younger one who's nine uh, under any circumstances. But I mean, the first impression that this is a silly proposition, clearly. Um, But it's a useful thought experiment for that reason. It shifts your perspective a bit because when you talk about voting at six, then voting at 16 or 14 becomes more thinkable. So I think that's what he's trying to do to sort of throw a stone in the pond. Yes, because he points out that very tiny slice of the electorate is actually going to be six. I mean, he does address the sort of arguments that the, the um, you know, in order to say why not, he does address, for example, the, the competence issue and says, that, you know, we don't apply a competence test to older people. Coming away from it, what do you think is the sort of strongest argument against it? Because he, he does make it seem quite uh, logical in terms of rebalancing the electorate, rejuvenating the franchise, quite literally. Yeah, I mean, first of all, six is far too young. Um, The other big danger, I would say, is that politics is often a complex business and inevitably this trying to appeal to much younger people will lead to a kind of oversimplification, a sort of first news version of politics. And that may not necessarily be a good thing. And I'm sympathetic to some of his arguments, particularly on the basis of climate change, because in the past, people used to vote on the next basis in the next five years. And we can't do that anymore, because we have to think about further ahead because of what we pretty mm. much know is going to happen. 
Um, so that is that is quite seductive. It's also useful to be reminded that people don't make their voting choices based on anything. Well, they don't often make it on a rational basis. They usually make it on the basis of their tribes and their connections and their instincts. And children would would presumably be no different. Well, I was going to say, you know, we talk about worrying about oversimplifying uh, politics. You know, uh, for example, trying to appeal to children by writing it a uh, promise on a on a big red bus. Um, <laughs> I mean, this, there's already a great deal of oversimplification and people voting on stuff that actually is very complicated and they don't understand most people don't you know understand this there's this there's, there's issues that i don't understand so on that level it's just uh it's like well why would uh, uh maybe not a six-year-old but why would a 12-year-old's understanding be so much worse than your average semi-engaged adult yeah and so often it comes down to trusting an individual to deliver what they say they're going to deliver are children worse at judging adults than adults themselves are perhaps not can I say something just as a throwaway thing? The the conclusive presumption in criminal law, the presumption that a child does not know right from wrong, is the age of 10. So above the age of 10, there's a rebuttable presumption that the child understands the difference between right and wrong for criminal law, which is a much a thing with much more severe consequences. Well, I wonder whether like a canny apprentice candidate, Runciman is going for six, hoping that he'll be able to, in the haggling process, <laughs> uh, manage to at least get it below 18. <laughs> we have a returning guest this week. Gracie May Bradley is director of the human rights organisation Liberty. Hello, Gracie. Hi. Last time she gave us a crash course in this country's struggle with civil liberties. Now you've just announced you've got a book coming out next year called Against Borders, The Case for Abolition. This title is not mucking about. What won you round to this idea without giving without giving away the, the book promo here? Without giving away the book promo, yeah. So this is a project that I've been up to um, kind of outside of Liberty with my good friend and conspirator, Luke de Narona. And it's actually a position that I've held for a very long time. But it's one that kind of, you know, times have changed sufficiently that we thought, OK, people might able to be to get on board with this and listen to this a bit more. But it really comes from the work that I did years and years ago, working with survivors of torture and other gross human rights violations. And I worked with a man who, you know, had lived in the same city as me for years and years and years. He was in immigration detention. He was a survivor of torture. He didn't want to stay in the UK. He wanted to be reunited somewhere else with his daughter. And the Home Office was really just insistent on crushing him, on on not releasing him, on not releasing him to the place he said he wanted to go to, on really just making his life a complete misery. And they were, you know, they were happy for him to die there. He was on hunger strike. And I think when you see the weight of the state come down against someone in that way, on the basis of he was born somewhere that I was not born by complete accident. I think when you see that kind of unnecessary cruelty and the systems that that cruelty kind of works in service of, you just think there has to be another way to do this. So much energy goes into bordering, excluding, stopping people from moving, and people moving is an inevitability. And so we should figure out, okay, how do we work with that? Cool. Oh, well, hopefully we'll have you, we'll have you back on when the book is out next year. Back to the day job. 
Nine Insulate Britain protesters have just been given three, four and six month sentences for breaching injunctions, stopping them from protesting on the M25. The Tories policing bill, with its controversial restrictions on protest, has fallen down the news agenda because of COP and COVID and all the other stuff. What is the latest on this bill? That's a great question, because sadly, this bill is going from bad to worse. And that's a pattern we keep seeing with legislation, that it's introduced to Parliament and it's already pretty alarming from a civil liberties perspective. And then as the process goes on and the chorus of opposition grows, the government brings in amendments to make that legislation worse. That's the pattern we're seeing with this bill, with the Nationality and Borders Bill, the Judicial Review Bill. But with this bill in particular, what we're now seeing are amendments that are aimed at direct action specifically. So a new offence of locking on, an offence of essentially having equipment that might be used for locking on. So if you're walking around with, I don't know, super glue, that might well fall into that category. Uh, And crucially, and I think really worrying, is that there's a new suspicionless stop and search power. So if a police officer thinks that a process-related offence might happen in their area, They can stop and search whoever they like. They don't have to have an individualised suspicion about that person. Um, And if that wasn't enough, we've also seen the introduction of serious disruption prevention orders. And that's essentially a civil order that can be imposed by a court that says if you breach that order, you will be criminalised. So it might say that you can't be with certain people. You can't go to a particular place. You can't use the Internet in particular ways. And all of that is targeting protesters. So under the guise of reacting to insulate Britain, we are seeing the government making a bill that poses a threat for all of us even worse. I'm sure I'm sure the police can be trusted to make the right calls <laughs> on these occasions. This week on the show, the corruption crisis becomes ever more hilarious. Boris Johnson has announced plans to ban second jobs for MPs, but do they go far enough? Plus, we turn our eye to Eastern Europe as Vladimir Putin increases the pressure on Russia's neighbours and the wider world. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, we'll be talking about how to apologise properly, whether you've sent an unwise tweet or carelessly attempted to subvert an ethics investigation. (laughs) But first, a word from Roz. Before we get started, don't forget our next live show in London on Wednesday the 8th of December. Join Dorian, Ian and Naomi Smith at the Leicester Square Theatre for our special festive celebration of Britain's wonderful year and all our favourite moments, if we can think of any. Tickets are selling fast, so visit leicestersquaretheatre.com to get yours. And Patreon people, remember your ticket discount still works. Now, it's week three in the big corruption house. Uh, What a ride it's been. A fortnight ago, ministers were loyally rallying behind Owen Paterson and the Leadsom Amendment, and we were tentatively discussing some kind of ban on second jobs. Now, Paterson is toast. The investigation into his breaches has been endorsed. The ministers are apologising. And Boris Johnson, for it is he, is pushing for swift action on second jobs. Before Keir Starmer could get going, the PM stood up to announce new proposals for an MP's Code of Conduct. But in PMQs, just before we recorded, Starmer laid into Johnson as a coward, not a leader, and the PM was reprimanded by the Speaker. Um, Alex, it's all been very exciting. Hasn't it? Um, Labour have their own proposals for restrictions on second jobs, uh, and of course they say the governments do not go far enough, as oppositions always do. How does their offer compare with what we think we know about the government's plans? 
Okay, so the language of the government's version is slightly more watered down. So Labour text calls for a ban on any paid work to provide services as a parliamentary strategist, advisor or consultant. The more important point is that the Labour text lays down a really specific mandatory schedule for the committee and standards coming forward with proposals and then guaranteeing time for that to be debated on the floor of the House and to be voted on. And that's where I think the biggest contrast with the government is, which says basically that the proposals they will get will form the basis of a viable approach and then gives absolutely no timetable or indeed any notion of what happens next. So it might allow them to basically wait for this to quieten down and then kick the can quite a long way down the road. This basically smells like a gambit to try and put this issue to bed. I don't think it's working from what I've seen. Like like you said, uh, Johnson had a torrid time at PMQs. He was basically told in politer terms to sit down and shut the fuck up by the Speaker, who's normally very, very placid. Just before we recorded, he was giving evidence to the Commons Liaison Committee and was having, again, a really, really torrid time, embarrassing time there. Uh, He was asked, for instance, why he told John Whittingdale. You may remember that one of the issues of the Patterson affair was that Johnson told John Whittingdale there was cross-party support for changing the rules for putting together a new committee when he hadn't approached the opposition. And challenged on that, Johnson replied, I can't comment on that conversation since I didn't have it. So, so he basically saying, I can't clarify something that I made up at the time, basically. It, it, It's been bad, and his uh, own MPs are really up in arms about it, and that, I think, spells danger. Uh, Can I just ask you something about the the Labour plan? When we have been talking here about um, second jobs, we've obviously made a distinction between consultancy gigs, uh, which can cross into lobbying and corruption, um, and, for example, um, either something that's that's an active good, like if mm. you're a GP, or something that's sort of that harmless, uh, like writing novels. It depends on the novel how harmless <laughs> it is. Um, are, are lab- when Labour talk about uh, second jobs, are they being specific, or I mean, how sweeping is that? Uh, Labour are saying that it will be all second jobs with an exemption for public service roles. In my view, all of this is a red herring. It will be ineffective because it does not tackle the core issue. The core issue is perceived or actual conflicts of interest. And of course, it does not tackle donations. But let's put that to one side. Instead of trying to predetermine which categories of jobs are beneficial and which are not, I think the approval process should be proactive rather than reactive. So there is a presumption now that you can just take a job, declare it, and see if anyone objects. That is the bit that needs fixing. In my view, every outside interest should not be taken unless you can positively show that this will assist your work as an MP. So let's shift the burden of proof, as it were, away from some committee to say that this is damaging and should not be happening, to the individual MP 
to show that this additional thing that I'm taking on will not take me away from my job as an MP, will not create a conflict of interest, and will actually be beneficial to my job as an MP. Instead of trying to create a, a system of rules that MPs will then go about finding loopholes in and counter um, manding, let's create a system that puts the burden on MPs to justify any outside commitment. They are, after all, paid to be full-time representatives of their constituency. And in my view, any outside commitment should be justified on that basis. Ross, the motion on the report into Paterson was delayed by a day by an objection from the Tory MP for Christchurch, Christopher Chope, uh, thus drawing attention to a motion that the government sort of hoped to bury late in the evening proceedings. Chope is notorious to objecting from everything from a bill to criminalise upskirting to a pardon for Alan Turing. How does he justify these objections? Well, his own account of this is that he disagrees with motions being passed without debate, which is a venerable aim. The trouble is that if you actually then look at what he says and does, I mean, he was an enthusiastic backer of prorogation two years ago when Boris Johnson prorogued Parliament. He was all in favour of it. So I don't quite see how that squares with objecting to motions being passed without debate. You know, you either believe in parliamentary, the importance of parliamentary debate, or you don't, but you can't have it both ways. He's really struggling to reconcile those two. and He clearly is failing. It's more of a hobby, isn't it, than a principle? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, his colleagues are livid. According to The Guardian, one called him an absolute twat and another said he should strongly consider retirement. Um, has, he, has he sort of worn out the patients of his uh, colleagues? Yeah, well, he's in a very safe seat. It's one of the safest seats in the country. Christchurch in Dorset. It's very Tory. So I can imagine that there will be plenty of people who will be happy to go along and perhaps take it off him. He is, after all, 74 and will be older by the time of the next election. So I wouldn't be surprised if he exited ahead of that at the next general election. But I think the problem is fundamentally they're angry. MPs are angry with him for dragging it out, um, for basically giving Labour a chance to have another debate about it and point out how incredibly hypocritical the Conservatives have been. And he represents a kind of old, complacent, very Brexity wing of the party. He can afford to be perverse for the sake of it. And I think a lot of the newer MPs who were elected in 2019 and are sitting on in seats that are not going to be nearly as safe come the next election, hopefully, can look at him and think, oh, for God's sake, you know, what impression is this guy giving of us? Gracie, the rule changes Johnson wants to bring in are based on a report from the Committee on Standards and Public Life from three years ago. So without this snafu, which is, I mean, it is amazing and entertaining to watch, would it have just gathered dust? Is this just basically kind of, it's it's come sort of back from the dead in order to uh, spare the government embarrassment? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a really interesting question. And I think we do have to look at, at this government's trajectory on accountability mechanisms. Um, you know, you just spoke about prorogation. Lots of people are abreast now of the way that this government is trying to undermine the laws and legal processes that we all use to hold it to account. We just talked about the, pro- the policing bill and how that's getting worse and worse. But that's also shutting down another avenue of accountability, which is protest. So when you look at the big picture on accountability with this government, what you're seeing is in the streets, shutting people down, in the courts, shutting people down, parliament, 
yes, with prorogation, but also the way Parliament was sidelined in pandemic lawmaking. Parliament has really been silenced, actually. And then there's all the stuff around the voter ID and the elections bill and the fact that people are going to be silenced at the ballot box. So I think it is fair to look at this latest um, brush of um, conscience with a little bit of cynicism, because actually this government is not one that embraces accountability mechanisms and can see how they you know, contribute to good governance and are a good check on state power. I would be very surprised if this government or if this prime minister would have been so enthusiastic about, you know, parliamentary standards, had this row not so spectacularly backfired for them. And of course, this turns it onto parliament, not the executive, which is, you know, is at the moment the most unaccountable mm. uh, arm of government. A um, friend of the show, David Allen Green, has pointed out there's no real legal definition of corruption in parliament's rule books. Gracie, how important do you think are the words we use? Like, where is it? Does it matter if we say corruption or sleaze or bringing parliament into disrepute? It's it's all describing the same thing. It is describing the same thing to some extent. I think that I think the difficulty with sleaze is that it feels like a bit of a throwback. And so for those of us who weren't around during the last Tory sleaze row, which is actually loads of people, I was a child, it doesn't really resonate. There's a lot of young people out there. Yeah, (laughs) It's frightening. (laughs) All the six-year-olds have no idea what this means. (laughs) You know, so, um, so there's that issue. But also, you know, I think that corruption is a word that, the UK government and politicians really love to apply to the developing world and people and governments in the developing world. But they tend to choose softer language when those very same issues come home. So I think there's a question of consistency there. But I also think that the framing is all very negative. And I think that actually what we want to be, I, you know, I think it was, um, it might have been the New Economics Foundation or NEON, who did some research about how people actually respond to the constant drumbeat of corruption, sleaze, politicians are just out for themselves and so on. And it can make people feel really fatalistic about the state of public Mm. life in this country. And I think that when we talk about bringing parliament into disrepute, people in policy spaces and lawmakers and so on understand what that means. And that has resonance. But I think we should really be talking about the values that we think politicians should exemplify, that we think should be upheld. What matters to us in public life? You know, is it honesty? Is it dedication? Is it diligence? Is it rigour? We need to talk about the values rather than having a kind of procedural conversation and then set out, you know, okay, this is how this government is falling short. This is how we think those values can be upheld and championed and expressed, because that's a very different and less fatalistic conversation. Mm. Yeah, yeah, good point. Alex, the 2019 intake of Tory backbenchers were furious with Johnson over uh, having to vote in a three-line whip and then um, facing a U-turn. Now, older MPs are fuming about his attack on their nice little earners. Um, Andrew Rosendell went on Newsnight to say that MPs who lose their second jobs might have to change their lifestyles. <laughs> um, I think there was a phone number at the bottom of the screen where you could <laughs> text in some lifestyle money. Is Johnson in trouble? Has Johnson managed to alienate two different sections of the party here? The problem is that there are three separate issues. Okay, one is the Patterson thing, which really ticked off the MPs for having to be 
marched into a voting lobby when they all of them basically thought that Patterson was guilty. Then there is the issue of what the fallout is and whether that will cost them a lot of money because they will lose all the side little earners. But along those two things is also the fact that this was entirely self-inflicted and shows Johnson to have really poor political antennae. And mm. nothing will restore this aspect of Johnson's reputation to his own MPs. If the polls turn around and put them back in a commanding lead, they, they will be pacified. But they will never again look at him as someone who somehow has his finger in the electoral pulse and understands the public better than they do. There was a poll today that shows 76% of people are concerned about corruption in government, and that includes 72% of people who voted Conservative in 2019. That is worrying for a government whose uh, line has been to tell everyone that this is just a Westminster bubble story for the last three weeks. This shows that it's anything but... Well, I should have mentioned up top, actually, in the exciting news bit that, of course, there have been quite a few polls showing Labour ahead. I mean, this is largely a question of Tory voters switching to undecided rather than switching to Labour. Mm. So it's not exactly party time at Labour HQ, but that's a major change. And it's all coming from this issue. Yeah, because it changes the narrative, because it, it makes him look like not the surefire winner they believed him to be. And it is remarkable how quickly this has turned round. I mean, six weeks ago it was party conference and, you know, the, the delegates were just loving him and they couldn't get enough <laughs> of him, despite that absolutely appalling speech. They It seemed like he was untouchable. And now look how fast things have turned yeah. around. And that should be heartening to anybody who was at the time, you know, saying, oh, God, you know, we're in for another seven years of Tory government. Things can change very fast. But it's, it's, it's when you're only good, at, like if you're, a, if you, if you're an artist, Asshole, for example, um, but you're an amazing uh, football player, then you're fine until you're no longer delivering on the pitch. Yeah. If you're an asshole and your box office gold, you can get away with it until your movies start yeah, making yeah, yeah. less money. Exactly. You know, you, exactly all right. that Johnson has going for him is that he wins. That's the only reason why people in the party like him. Roz, finally, you are on apology assessment duties. We're going to be talking about apologies more <laughs> later on. But in the brief pre-U-turn window, Business Minister Kwasi Kwarteng uh, called for Standards Commissioner Catherine Stone to consider her position. Now he's written an open apology to her. Meanwhile, Mogg has called his support for Patterson a mistake. I'm going to ask you to rate both of them. There is not an apology from Johnson because Mogg said one would not be sincere. So that's right then. First... Kwasi Kwarteng wrote that having seen how my remarks have been interpreted and reflecting on them, I recognise that in answering the question that was posed to me, I should have chosen my words more carefully. I did not mean to express doubt about your ability to discharge your role, and I apologise for any upset or distress my choice of words, let's say again, consider her position, may have caused. What do you make of that apology? Well, I mean, this is this is obviously very, very poor. I mean, it's kind of two out of ten as apologies go. It's a classic kind of I'm sorry for my choice of words, which is a familiar formulation in 
political apologies in particular. I mean, he actually told Sky that I think it's difficult to see what the future of the commissioner is. So I don't see how it could be clear. I mean, that that is a strong implication that she should resign or she will be re- removed uh, by the whatever new standards agency they will get planning to cook up. Maybe between he's themselves. just reflecting on how it's difficult for any of us <laughs> to see the future and that life really is just a, a veil of fog. Yeah. Through which we stumble. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I often get that impression from uh, Kwasi Kwarteng's appearances on uh, broadcast media. There's a definite philosophical bet. No, I mean, you know, he's, he's, he's always on, on broadcast because he's got this incredibly reassuring voice. He evokes a kind of decent, Middle England, reassuring, it's all in our hands, dear, kind of thing. This is why he is so often on the Today programme, because he has this gift for doing it. I mean, he's basically, he's he's going to be furious with himself for, uh, for having bought into Johnson's line mm. so quickly and not anticipating that he would have to U-turn I, so fast. It's basically, I apologise for saying exactly what I mean meant at the time because what I mean changed half an hour later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mogg, meanwhile, his sort of uh, explanation was that the death of Patterson's wife coloured and clouded our judgment and my judgment incorrectly. It is as simple and as sad as that. But he did admit that was a mistake. Uh, what do you make of that angle? I mean, looking at Jacob Rees-Mogg, do you, do you feel that he's the kind of guy whose judgment is regularly <laughs> swayed by emotion? <laughs> I, I, I don't get that impression when I when I see him. I mean, basically, you're saying I, I made the mistake because I cared too much for Patterson. It's the old kind of I did it out of love. I did it out of love, Milan. <laughs> defense I, I couldn't i couldn't help myself he's too compassionate <laughs> that's his yeah. that's his favorite flaw yeah. he's just what's, too nice. what's my worst quality if anything i care too much yeah yeah i mean most of us most of us have cared too much and wrongly in the past in some way but we haven't proposed overhauling an entire system of parliamentary standards when we did so and you know on its own terms this is nonsensical because you know if he cared so much about the guy we'll just shorten his suspension or something i mean not not uh, not <laughs> try to ensure that no one else fell foul of the same rules in future, which is basically what he did. I mean, he, they are they are both victims of Johnson's chronic indecisiveness, which Dominic Cummings has aptly characterised as, you know, the trolley, where he just kind of veers from side to side, depending on which who was the last person he talked to. And they they have both fallen foul of this. And I imagine that privately they are both furious. Next this week, with ongoing tensions on the border between Poland and Belarus, more than 100,000 Russian military personnel are gathering near the border with Ukraine, raising concerns about an attack on the country. Our own Ian Dunt wrote a column in The Eye called Russia's military threats against Ukraine are an assault on freedom aimed right at Europe's heart. Roz, this goes back to the Ukrainian revolution in 2014, which led to the Russian invasion of Crimea, the accidental downing of Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, which uh, Russia said they didn't do, but they did do, and military hostilities, which have so far killed around 13,000 soldiers and civilians and wounded around 30,000. Even though it's kind of been static, it's been like a mini Cold War since 2015. What are people saying about Russia's intentions now? Does it seem like something very bad is about to happen, or is it saber-rattling? It's hard to say because 
there are huge advantages for Russia in continuing this, prolonging this state of uncertainty which they've created and this state of fear which they've created. Because basically, Russia's fundamental intentions are to destabilise as much of the uh, the edge of the EU and the former Soviet states as possible in the hope that those states will eventually become exhausted by this war of attrition and will welcome Russian intervention as providing some certainty and some dominance. You know, that's a very powerful political motivation. Domestically, you saw it when everybody was exhausted during the Brexit talks and they just basically gave in for a bit of peace of mind and for a knowledge that something was going to happen, no matter what that was going to be. People in Ukraine are living in a state of chronic uncertainty about this. And ultimately, if it is prolonged for long enough, they will just want some kind of resolution, even if that means a Russian invasion. Putin also wants basically to expose the EU's weakness and to show that it can't, it hasn't got the unity to defend the former Soviet states, that it is fundamentally, they want to show that it will be powerless when it comes to preserving that kind of very fragile status quo that has sprung up since the end of the Cold War. In a sense, it doesn't matter whether Russia is going to invade in the next week or in the next month. The uncertainty that Russia's troop movements on the border and the threat creates is exactly what Putin wants. Ukraine is not a member of NATO, but Sir Nick Carter, the head of the UK's armed forces, says the army should be prepared for war with Russia, uh, a phrase which sounds suboptimal. Um, do you think the government would go that far or any, uh, I was going to say any other EU, <laughs> we're not in the EU, but any other Western European um, powers would do that for Ukraine, which is likely to be, I'd imagine, the Donbass, like the east of the country rather than the entirety of Ukraine. Is that a, uh, a likely scenario? I can't see there being significant backing in Britain for that kind of thing. I mean, you can you can imagine calls for airstrikes of some kind, but what we've seen all from in the last 20, 25 years, the difficulties that a kind of what politicians would like to think of as surgical interventions, mm. but are actually just bombing vulnerable regions can, can lead to. I don't think it would end up being what you call a hot war anyway. I think it would be a constant state of Cold War, that is the best way of putting it, with Russia, where we were trying to impose sanctions, where we were constantly trying to show Vladimir Putin that the EU and Britain could stand up to him without actually going so far as to stand up to him. I mean, what we've seen this week is Boris Johnson warning that the EU must not let Nord Stream 2 go ahead, which is the big gas pipe which runs through the Baltics and basically bypasses Ukraine. At the moment, Ukraine gets big fees from Russia for sending Russia's gas through it on the way to the EU. And so if Nord Stream 2 comes into operation, that basically bypasses that. It means Ukraine becomes more powerless because it has fewer revenues from those from those uh, taxes on the gas transition and that will weaken it and make it more vulnerable to russian interference and the fact that johnson intervened to say that 
this week is quite significant. But I think it will ultimately come down as well to Realpolitik over gas. We do need gas. That will become ever more apparent this this winter. And Putin has an overwhelming weapon at his disposal when it comes to supplying the EU with the gas it needs. Alex, the story on the Poland-Belarus border uh, has been going on for a while. Can you explain what it is and how it has evolved? So EU-Belarus relations have been really strained ever since uh, Lukashenko declared victory in a largely discredited presidential election last summer. And then he went on to try and silence dissent, cracking down on mass protests and arresting political opponents. And this escalated uh, when this summer, when Belarus rerouted a Ryanair plane, which was flying between two EU member states, forced it to land in Minsk in order to arrest a distant journalist, Roman Protasevich, and his partner. The first thing to note is that this is not a real migrant crisis, but an entirely confected one. Let me qualify that. So Erdogan, for instance, employed this same technique of pushing refugees to the EU border in order to blackmail concessions. But Turkey had a real problem with Syrian refugees. At one point, there were over a million and a half of them in Turkey. What we're seeing with the Belarusian situation is that refugees have been flown from thousands of miles away into Belarus in order to be used as pawns in this incredibly cruel game where they're basically pushed towards the border by one army and then pushed away by the Polish. So where are they being flown from and who by? There are allegations that they're being flown in by Iran and by Syria. And so all flights have now ceased between Iran, Syria and uh, uh, Belarus. And there was also some implication that they were being flown in from Turkey, although I haven't seen confirmation of that. Crazy. The provocation here is reportedly to make Poland and uh, the wider EU seem intolerant and hostile to migrants. Does that provocation work because... Poland and the EU in general are intolerant and hostile to migrants? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I mean, I would say that I I wouldn't necessarily draw such such a bright line between this migrant crisis and other migrant crises, because that suffering is always unnecessary to some extent. Um, if countries would agree that people could move safely or be safely accommodated or agree to stop kind of producing the conditions that force people to move, we wouldn't face the crises that that we keep seeing. And they're really crises of, of solidarity rather than crises of migration. The EU is already pretty hostile to migrants. We know that. Um, the EU already has an, an, an informal policy of pushbacks. Or I think it was 2015, the forensic architecture reported on the left to die boat that was just left hundreds of people drifting in the Mediterranean and they were seen and they weren't rescued. So this has been going on for years and years and years. Whether or not the provocation works, I'm not well placed to judge. But the point is, is that, you know, I think perhaps eight people have died already. People are freezing to death. Um, People are being left in in completely open areas with, with no sanitation, with no food, 
the political context is different, but the continuity between, you know, the witness statements that, that we're hearing from the ground um, on this border and what we've been hearing from Calais and what we were hearing from Eastern Europe at the height of Syrian people fleeing Syria, there is a horrible continuity between those accounts. And so I think, yes, of course, it's really important to understand the kind of geopolitical context and the drivers of, of this particular suffering. But it's also really important for us to see that this is happening to people on the move all over the world and has been for a long time. And, and you know, increasingly is happening at, at Britain's borders and in the Channel. Because, I mean, this is this is Poland and, and Belarus. And Belarus is a country that we still, that a lot of people still don't know that much about. Do you think this issue in this part of Europe is, would gain traction here? Or is it sort of a, a situation of a faraway country of which we know nothing? And, and actually, we only pay attention to migration, you know, when it is literally on our borders. I think that media talk about this kind of thing in different ways, depending on where it is and depending on who's perceived to be threatened. So I think, you know, it's unlikely that we would necessarily have heard very much about this if there wasn't the whole EU pressure dimension. Because as I say, this is happening day in, day out at the EU's external borders. That's, mm. that's not news. In a way, I think that here in England, what we're seeing um, is a kind of weaponizing of people seeking asylum. Um, We've seen some really hostile rhetoric and policy from this Home Secretary when we think about all of the news about people coming over on boats, for example, the way that Britain and France are arguing about this and are arguing about a lot of things. But I think that wherever it's happening... I don't want to be really pessimistic because I feel like there are always people listening to these stories and trying to act in solidarity with people who are on the sharp end of this. There are some human rights defenders in Greece who are at risk of criminalisation and who are on trial because they've shown solidarity to migrants. But I got an email about a solidarity demonstration about that, you know, at the embassy in London. I got that email this week. So for all that, you know, no, the public writ, writ large might not care for, for the right reasons because they're told particular stories there. There are always people who are willing to kind of say that's not right and we think that yeah. something different is possible. Roz, I mean, Ukraine is is maybe, you know, some listeners will know quite a lot about it and, and some less so. A lot of books about post-truth politics, I noticed, um, see Russian propaganda in Ukraine in 2014 as a turning point. Um, and they they look at sort of what happened around the 2016 uh, US election and they go, well, a lot of this stuff was sort of tried out in Ukraine. Should we be paying more attention to this, to this region than we do? Because it's not what what happens in Ukraine does not stay in Ukraine. Yeah, Peter Pomerantsev, who's one of the leading uh, people to write about this, uh, as I'm sure you know, has, has written very persuasively about how cleverly Russia basically manipulated the media. And in the uh, in the U.S. elections in 2016, there was a slightly different approach because a lot was done via advertising and via social media. But in 2014, although there was a lot of Russian influence in social media, and indeed one of the most popular networks, Vcontacta, actually passed user details to the FSB, it was the TV and the command that Russia had 
over TV channels that were broadcast to Ukrainians that gave them a real edge. So basically, they were able to sow sufficient degrees of mistrust in the Ukrainian government to achieve that they effect they wanted. And that was done not just by, you know, constantly pumping out pro-Russian propaganda in a very basic sort of way, but by using attractive Russian media personalities and actors and basically commanding both the entertainment and information side of things in order to create that Russian-led media ecosystem. And they also played on lots of very resonant narratives in Ukraine about the uh, World War II narratives about Russian heroism in uh, defeating the Nazis during the Second World War. And they were able to play on that. And we know from our own heritage in, in Britain how powerful narratives about the Second World War can be. The tactics were basically the ones we, we talked about earlier. It's aimed at fostering division and sowing distrust of the incumbent government. And those tactics, as you say, proved to be entirely suitable for trying to influence the American election and the EU referendum. So I recommend, this is not propaganda, I think it's called. That's right, yeah. Peter Poransev. And also Bellingcat has a very good uh, podcast series on uh, flight MH17. Alex, just to wrap up, Roz mentioned the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline um, mm. earlier, which is proof of process has just been suspended. Merkel was relatively friendly with Russia, not, not like uh, a huge fan of Putin, but quite diplomatic. Do you think that could change when the new coalition government comes in? OK, look, Merkel wasn't particularly being friendly to Russia. She was being friendly to her own consumers. The moment the German energy regulator announced it would not continue its approval process for Nord Stream 2, what happened? Energy markets surged all around Europe. So basically, the price that we will all pay for our electricity and gas has just gone up. The problem is that Russia is seen as manipulating gas supply to leverage over EU leaders. So strengthening its hand has finally come to be seen as a bad thing. And this is a significant switch, I think, from a policy of appeasement to one of confrontation. Anne Applebaum is on the ground in Belarus. Uh, and she said something that I thought was very, very smart. She said the West underestimated the issue of uh, what I would describe as agents of chaos. So we thought like any other foreign policy, action and reaction were vaguely related to each other. This isn't the case with these autocratic regimes, with Putin, with Erdogan, with Lukashenko. They have an inherent and continuous interest in discrediting Western institutions and structures as weak, ineffective and indecisive. Even if left completely to their own devices, they would do it because it strengthens their claim that a strongman autocrat is the only way to be. I spoke to Arthur Snell about this uh, on our sister podcast, The Bunker, and he thinks that all of this, Belarus, Ukraine, the, the rationing of gas supply to Europe, is basically Putin's way of testing Biden's resolve. And I think it is possible that Washington has decided to take a more assertive stance on the issue and that Germany's decision not to approve the new gas pipe is the first missive in that new geopolitical board. Thank you.
We are nearly at the end of the show, so it's time to find out the stories that you may have missed on Under the Radar. Uh, we will start with our guest, Gracie. Huh. Well, the tricky thing is, is that actually my Under the Radar was on the radar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, and obviously I'm a, I'm a one-trip pony being Director of Liberty, so I was going to talk about the policing bill, but actually I'm very glad that that's on the radar. <laughs> And I was looking for some good news, but I couldn't find any. But but that's on me. That's all right. It's a common problem here. (laughs) But um, I was just going to mention that in the vein of bills coming in bad and getting worse, the Nationality and Borders Bill is also now even worse in that it includes now a clause that would mean that the government can strip you of your citizenship in secret i.e. they don't have to tell you that they're stripping you of your citizenship if it's not reasonably practicable to do so. And that, of course, is if you can't appeal against something that you don't know about, there's already a lot of obstacles in the way of you being able to appeal a decision like that, as we've seen in the case of Shamima Begum. It's sending another strong message, as the Institute of Race Relations has said, that essentially, if you are, if you are someone with heritage in addition to British heritage you are a second class citizen you're always more precarious and that's a that's a downward trajectory that's been going in that direction you know since the early noughties but again it's something that's gotten even worse so that's very much under the radar because there are a lot of bits of regressive legislation to talk about and I'm sorry that I couldn't bring a piece of good news that had flown under the radar. But still, I think it's something important that people need to be aware of. That's OK. I'm sure um, Sure, Roz has got fantastic news for us. Uh, no, sorry. In the <laughs> short term, not. Though perhaps potentially it could improve things. You, you'll know that uh, COP26 was and a really a better deal, was scuppered by India and China, basically saying they would phase down coal and not phase it out, which has got a lot of publicity. What has got less publicity is that the smog in New Delhi this week is so very bad. It's always bad, but now it's just kind of off the scale bad, that they have closed schools, that there is talk of a lockdown not not a pandemic lockdown, a wow. smog lockdown due to how toxic this is. And they've actually, as a result, closed six of the 11 coal-fired plants near New Delhi because there's nothing else to do in order to enable people to breathe. So, yeah, short term, terrible story. Uh, longer term, I mean, it does show that the problems of coal-fired power stations are not just in terms of CO2 emissions, but are also stopping people breathing. And maybe that will lead to faster action on the part of India if there's enough pressure. Well, wasn't that why, you know, the main reason that China has acted... Yeah. Uh, on pollution was simply that the air quality in the in major Chinese cities was becoming intolerable. And that's something that, that your citizens, that's not something in the far distant, in the distant future, that's something that's like affecting your citizens right yeah. now. And it's not easy for <clears throat> India to close down these power, these coal-fired <clears throat> plants because they rely on them, because they they're build, they need them in order for Indians to have a better quality of life. But if they realise that a better quality of life does not include being poisoned by toxic smog, then perhaps we will make some progress. Alex? I have a corker for you, Dorian. Good. Um, the Financial Services Authority recruiting troubles. So the FSA have lost over 100 senior people. And I'm getting reports from people who work there that morale is in the 
toilet. They are trying to recruit over uh, 500 new people, and they have so far had minuscule number of applications. And at the same time, they're being given new powers by the government to promote the UK's competitiveness, which some see as contradictory to their role as regulator. But putting that to one side, what has happened is that this has created a regulatory vacuum. So this was basically the government's moment to emerge with a plan for the future of finance. But they've been so hamstrung with stupid arguments about sausages and pies and scallops that they've done nothing about it. The EU has extended the transitional arrangements on a few areas, but it's beginning to have an impact. So, for instance, left to their own devices, UK credit cards have charged whatever they deem fit for retailers. So today we have seen Amazon announce that it will no longer accept UK-issued Visa cards. This will fray around the edges slowly and then fall apart very, very quickly. We effectively don't have a competent financial authority at the moment, purely because they are so overstretched. They cannot regulate an area that we found out in 2008 needs regulation. You see, you started that like it was going to be sort of fun. It was fun. Uh, and and uplifting. Uh, but, you know. Um, well, look, it's fun for the hundred odd people who have left. True. And for people who uh, don't use credit cards, I guess. And for people who are hoping to get away with financial crime. So, hurrah. And that's the show. My thank you to Alex. Thank you. Roz. Thank you. And our guest, Gracie May Bradley. Thanks very much. Stay tuned for our extra bit for Patreons. You'll hear a quick preview after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Hello and best wishes from me to Matthew Reeves, Ranulf Peak Savory. I hope you're going to start your own pie business, Ranulf. I think that would be a perfect name for it. Sean Gilligan, Liam Riley, Lorraine and Andrew Dandilly. And a big thanks from me to Daniel Demby, James Harvey, Paul Thompson, Kathy Kelly, Alex MacDonald and John Knott. And finally, thanks from me to Chris Rudd, Emma Packer, Guy Brasher, Jack Bergen, Ben Hudson and Tim. See you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ross Taylor and Alex Andre. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archibald and Jan Lasofrenievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. It's my second job. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Now, we've all said and done things we regret, and sometimes we've apologised for them. But it's not easy, especially when you're a public figure. What makes for an effective apology and what just sounds like bullshit? Gracie, whether you are the apologizer or the apologizee, what do you find helps to resolve the issue? We're going to start on a we're going to start on a private level here. On a private level. So I think it's really important for someone to actually say the word sorry or say I apologize. <laughs> Ideally not followed by if. Um, <laughs> I think if someone can actually say what they did and acknowledge the impact that it had that's always very helpful and then finally I think they should say what they're going to do to repair it 
or stop it from happening again mm. and maybe ask the person if there's anything else they need from you in order to feel better about what happened i'm quite quick to apologize if i know i've really messed up so i've, yeah. I've spent a lot of time thinking about how to do it well that's textbook yes no i think the word i, I, I can i could be absolutely furious and then literally the word sorry will just sort of melt me and I'm like, oh that's all right then. <laughs> but it has um, to be I'm, I'm a sorry sucker. and that's the end of it not I'm sorry if I hurt you or I'm sorry but you know I still feel this way about you or it just yeah, I think just saying I'm sorry by itself is the most powerful um so but you know I'm sorry for any inconvenience cause you know I'm sorry <laughs> if you were offended what are the other kind of weasel phrases what what are the things that kind of that bug you no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you feel this way because you know, because I'm, I'm sorry you feel this way. It's basically you know, I'm sorry that you're so stupid yeah. that you've reacted in this way to I'm sorry something you're so I did. Fucking sensitive. Yeah, you need to get less sensitive, and then you wouldn't have demand an apology from me, which I don't want to give. It's basically the undercurrent of it. I mean, obviously the best apologies are those that are not kind of demanded. I think because by the time you're demanding. You're demanding an apology. It's already a bad vibe going on and you're already into performative territory. And once you get into performative territory with mm. apologies, as we've seen with Reese Morgan Quarteng this week, then then you're kind of in total fake sincerity mode and everything is done in bad faith. And, you, yeah. and it all just becomes totally... And that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our new weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support really does help keep us going. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 